grace is so amazing. Lord, you've taken our chains away that were put on us by our sin. And Lord, we're thankful for that. And we have a new reason to live and to come together as a church and gather and hear about the things that you have for us and how you want us to live. This morning, Lord, as we open up your word and see what you have for us today, I pray that you would also open up our hearts so that we'd be receptive and that we would leave here not with knowledge, but with a reason to live differently. Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me to speak only your truth and that we would learn good things today. Amen. I want to start today's message off with a story. Now, it's a story that I've shared before in a sermon, but I have a slightly different angle. And it's also one of my stories, so you know what? I'm just going to tell it again. So this story is about a Native American chief, and he's taking his son aside, and his son has just become of age. So he, he tells his son this story. He says, son, in every man there is a battle between two wolves. One wolf is... A, a kind, loving wolf who takes care of his responsibilities. He takes care of his family. He supports his community and he respects the land that he lives in. And the other land, wolf is a bad wolf. This wolf is hatred. This wolf is anger. This wolf is pride. This wolf is irresponsibility. And the son looks at his father and says, well, daddy, who, which wolf wins? And the, the chief looks down at his son and says, the one that you feed. And I think this story, it has a really profound message. But again, it's not really the reason I wanted to share this story with you today. I want to share it because the structure of this story is set up um, the same way that the passages that we talked about last week and today are set up. In the story of the two wolves, the father presents his son with two options. One, obviously good, and one is obviously bad. And he tells the story to his son to encourage him to feed the wolf of good character. In the same way, Joshua 6 and 7 presents two battles that Israel engages in with exact opposite results. Last week, we talked about Jericho, which is a victory where Israel trusted God and were obedient because they expected God to come through on his promises. Today, we're learning about a contrasting battle where Israel is disobedient, and as a result, they suffer defeat. Like the child that is being instructed by his father, the writer of Joshua presents these two, two stories together to encourage Israel to choose obedience and trust in God so that they can enjoy the promised land that he was delivering to them. We're in the middle of a sermon series where we're walking through the book of Joshua. The nation of Israel, before the book of Joshua starts, has just finished 40 years of wandering in the desert. And the book of Joshua tells the story of how Israel crossed over the Jordan River and took hold of the land that God had promised back to their forefather, Abraham. It was an exciting and critical time in the life of the nation. And the book is filled with examples and lessons on navigating new and exciting times. And the reason we're doing this sermon series right now is we feel like at Freedens, we're an exciting time too, where God is doing a lot of exciting things in this church. And we want to learn that the lessons 
that this book has to offer as we navigate through this critical time in our church's history. We pick up the story today after the Israelites have just defeated and destroyed the fortress city of Jericho, where God miraculously collapsed the walls and allowed the Israelite army to walk in and just take the city. Israel is at a time when their trust and dedication to God is at an all-time high. They are witnessing the fulfillment of his promises before their very eyes. And for the most part, they're responding in obedience. Now, after they had conquered the city of Jericho, God gave them very specific instructions about what they were to do with the ruins of Jericho. They were instructed to kill everyone except Rahab and her family. They were to burn everything, and they were to only take things that were precious metals and devoted things. And both these precious metals and these devoted things were to be given to the treasury of God, and the people were not to take anything for themselves. Part of the significance of the devoted things is that many of these objects were used in the worship of the false gods of the Canaanites. By claiming them as his own, God was repurposing them for a holy cause. He was getting rid of the evil and falseness of the false gods and their artifacts. And he was making them set apart and allowing these holy objects to now be glorifying to God. And this imagery of taking these objects that were used to worship a false god and repurposing them to glorify God is a reflection of really what God is doing in the entire story of Joshua with the promised land. The Bible describes the Canaanites as a wicked, depraved, and just a violent people. They had abused their opportunities to repent, and they chose instead to live lives that were utterly detestable to God. Just like the wicked people that were living right before the flood, God decided that enough was enough and judgment needed to come to these people. By bringing the Israelites into the promised land, he was removing the wicked occupants from the land and he was replacing them with a people that were supposed to be holy. They were not to be devoted to false gods, but instead they were to be devoted to the worship of the true God. So God commanded the people to devote everything in Jericho to himself as a reminder that everything in their lives should be devoted to him. That's the setting that we need to understand as, as we look at our passage today. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Joshua 7, verses 1 through 5, or you can just look up at the screen. We're going to start reading in verse 1. But the Israelites were unfaithful to God in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Kimri, the son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua had sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or 3,000 men to take it, and do not weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. So even though God had called the Israelites to devote all of Jericho to himself, one man named Achan decided to take some of these devoted things and hide them in a hole in the ground under his tent. It was a breach of trust, and Achan was clearly doing something wrong. 
but the severity of his offense was not because the action of stealing was wrong, but rather because of who Achan stole from. He stole from God himself. This made God upset, and he had to deal with this sin in a severe way to remind his people that they are not to live that way, but instead their call is to be holy. So when the spies check out the next city the Israelites were to conquer called Ai, they brought back a report that it was a small town and only about 3,000 soldiers were needed to defeat it. So Joshua sends 3,000 soldiers up to attack the settlement. And according to this passage, these men are completely defeated. The exact words from the passage is that they were routed by the men of Ai and that 36 Israelites were killed. Verse 5 tells us that as a result, the Israelites were very fearful. And it uses the same exact language to describe the fear that the Canaanites had when they saw the miracles that God performed in allowing Israel to cross the Jordan and the collapse of the walls of Jericho in the previous couple chapters. It says that their hearts melted in fear. And when I first read this, I couldn't help but wonder, like, why was this a route? I mean, 36 men died out of 3,000. That's only 1.2% casualty rate. I feel like in war, you kind of have to be like, well, a few people are going to die. It's war. You have an army of 3,000, only 36 die. Maybe just, you know, keep fighting a little bit and maybe you win. Um, I mean, if the soldiers storming Normandy during World War II would have hit a casualty rate of 1.2% and said, all right, tough loss, boys, let's pack it up. We are hitting decent service off Deutsch, which means we might be having this service in Germany for those of you who speak English. Like, why was this loss to AI such a devastating defeat? I think here's what's going on that made this defeat so devastating for the Israelites. See, the Israelites were on this high from crossing the Jordan where God had miraculously parted the rivers for them. And then they went in, they took down this fortress city where God miraculously knocked down the walls. They're feeling pretty good. Even though they're stuck in this land where they're surrounded by Canaanites that want them dead and they're vastly outnumbered, they're feeling confident because their God is with them. It's kind of like in those kung fu movies, you know, where you have somebody like Chuck Norris standing in the middle and like there's a big circle around them of like all these guys that want to like fight them and beat them down and take them out. And these guys come in like one or two at a time and they're just getting destroyed, right? But they keep coming in and, and that guy in the middle just keeps, keeps taking them out. You see, I would be the guy in that movie standing in the side and I'd be like, you know what? All my friends are getting beat. I don't think I'm going to go fight that guy. And that's kind of the attitude that the Canaanites had at this time. They're seeing how Israel is just destroying everything that they're trying to do. And they're looking around and seeing what Israel is doing, and they're like, you know what? Future David from fake kung fu movie, he might be onto something. Maybe we don't go fight those guys. And so Israel kind of has this hedge of protection around them because their mighty God is doing these mighty acts before them, and he's delivering them these amazing victories And it's causing the Canaanites to be too afraid to attack them. And now the Israelites come to this tiny little town that shouldn't even pose a threat to them. And they're badly defeated. They're unable to take the village. They're humiliated. And worst of all, 
their vulnerability has been shown. And they're afraid now that the other people in the promised land are going to look at them and be like, you know what? Maybe we should go fight those guys. They're no longer afraid of them. But instead, Israel is afraid that the Canaanite people are going to move in and wipe them out. And Joshua seems to take this defeat a lot more seriously than I did when I first read it. It says that he and the elders inquire of the Lord, lamenting their feet and asking God, why did you let this happen? God responds in verses 10 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. The Lord tells them that the reason for their defeat is that Israel has sinned and broken the covenant that God made with them. He tells the leaders that someone has stolen dedicated items from the plunder of Jericho and then lied about it. God tells them that this is the reason for their defeat. And the passage says, they have been made liable to destruction. Now that they sinned and broke the covenant, he was no longer protecting them. He told them that unless they find out who was responsible for stealing these items, he would not return his protection to them. God refers to the thief as someone who is devoted to destruction. It uses that same devoted term here. You see, Achan and his family, they were not devoted to God. They were devoted to sinful ways of personal gain. And that only leads to destruction. And that's what's wrong with the Canaanites living in this promised land who are now facing judgment for their own wickedness. God allowed this defeat to serve as a reminder to the people that they needed to be different than the Canaanites living in this land. And they needed to be different than their parents who had to wander in the desert for 40 years because they were disobedient to God. Instead, God is calling the Israelites to be holy. I find it kind of interesting that God doesn't just tell Joshua who the guilty person is. Instead, God gives them this long process that they need to do in order to find out who took the designated items. And this is laid out in verses 14 and 15. I'm not going to read them. I'm just going to kind of summarize it. These verses say that God would enact the following process for rooting out who the guilty party was. All the entire nation of Israel was, was to gather together, and they were to be grouped by clan. So there were, I'm sorry, by tribes. So there were 12 tribes within um, the nation of Israel. And then within that, those 12 tribes, they all had clans that they were a part of that were smaller than the big tribe. And then they all had families, and then there were individual people. And God would choose which tribe held the guilty person. And that tribe was to step forward in front of the entire nation of Israel. And then within that tribe, God would say who the clan was. And that clan within that tribe would step forward. And then God would tell them who the family was that was responsible. And that family was come forward. And then God would say who the guilty man was. And that man would stand, come forward in front of the entire nation of Israel. When the time came for the ceremony to take place, the entire nation of Israel gathered. The tribe of Judah was, was chosen. Then the clan of the Zerahites was chosen. They came forward. Then the families of Zimri was chosen. 
throughout all this time, why these people are coming forward, Achan had the ability to come forward and confess what he had done. Instead, Achan chose to stand there silent and just hope that the omniscient God wouldn't know what he had done. Achan was unrepentant and had no desire to reveal his sin or take responsibility for his actions. When God pointed out that it was Achan who had sinned, Joshua asked him what he had done. Achan finally confessed that he had stolen a beautiful robe along with some gold and silver and hid them in a hole under his tent. Joshua sent some men to Achan's tent and they found those dedicated items hidden there. They took the items before God, before Joshua, and before the whole nation of Israel. Israelites then took Achan and his family and all his possessions, including the things he stole from Jericho, and they put them in the valley. And the entire nation of Israel stoned them. They burned them and they buried them under a large pile of rocks. They brought judgment upon Achan's sin. Now that the sin had been dealt with, God's anger was turned and his hedge of protection returned to Israel again. One of the obvious things that we can see from this story is the devastating effects of sin. Look at the question that Joshua asks Achan after he has found out. It says in verse 25, why have you brought this trouble upon us? You see, Achan's sin didn't just hurt Achan and bring about Achan's own destruction. It affected the entire nation. The cold, hard truth is that our sin has the power to destroy us and the people around us. Sin is almost never fair. It hurts other people and it causes a lot of collateral damage. That's one of the reasons why sin's so bad. I bet most of us in this room have many stories that we could tell about how we have been hurt by other people's sin. Certainly many of us can remember a time when our parents acted selfishly or were unable to control their temper. We can share stories where we've experienced the betrayal of friends, the unfaithfulness of a lover, the unfairness of a teacher, the bad mood of a boss, the harsh words of an upset spouse, the neglect of an irresponsible coworker, and the list goes on and on and on. Sin even has the power to bring down a church. Think of the story of Ananias and Sapphira from Acts chapter five, which is a very familiar story to today's story about Achan's sin. Ananias were a husband and a wife couple that were around as the New Testament church was forming. They had just sold a piece of land and they donated the money to the church, which sounds like a really nice thing to do. The only problem is they totally lied about how much they had sold the land for. And they kept a lot of the money for themselves. You see, they weren't really trying to help the church out and do good things. They just wanted to make themselves look good to the other people in the church. And as a result, they just fell over dead. God knew that if he allowed the early church to take sin lightly, that it would infest his people and kill any hope of the gospel spreading. He knew the destruction it would cause, and so he nipped it in the bud. God brought destruction to the sinful people so that sin would not destroy his people. And that same exact thing that happened with Ananias and Sapphira, and God 
um, removing that sin early so that it would not infect the rest of the church is the same thing that God is doing here with the nation of Israel. He's getting rid of the, the sin and showing a drastic example of that so the nation of Israel will not take sin lightly, but they will understand their call to be holy. And I think we need to keep that in mind as a church today because we want to be people that live holy lives. And we don't want sin to divide or defeat us. I had a really cool conversation about a year ago um, with a good friend of mine. And part of his job is to go around and he visits a lot of different churches. And as he got to know Freedance, he made this um, remark to me because I asked him um, about what he thought of Freedance. And he said, David, I think Freedance is one of the most healthy churches that I've ever been to. You guys have an amazing leadership staff here that is really doing a great job um, keeping things in order and bringing health to that body. And the entire um, congregation is getting excited about the things that are, are going on and getting aligned with it. And it's really cool to see what God is doing at Freedoms. That's what my friend said to me. And I was really excited to hear about that because... I'm excited to be a church that's, that's really healthy, and I want to see God do amazing things in, in, in and through us. We want to capitalize on that health, and we want to use that to bring Jesus to our communities, and we want to see the generations that are coming after us to see the greatness of Jesus. And I think we have been given this amazing opportunity to use the health that we have a congregation to spread the good news of the gospel starting here in Port Washington and all around the world. And I'm really excited about what God is going to do. And I think the last thing we want is for sin to squander those opportunities. So how do we make sure sin doesn't bring us down or hurt the people around us? You might find this shocking, but I think you find the answer to that question in the Bible. It says in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I think this verse reveals a huge truth. The human response to sin is to cover it up. But the divine response to sin is to reveal it. I think sin is like a vampire. When it's given the veil of darkness, it grows and it hunts and it destroys. But when it's brought into the light, it turns to ash God calls us as his people to confess our sins and break its power over us. I know for me that's been one of the most powerful assets I have had in my own war against sin. And that's been having friends who love Jesus as much as I do. And I've been able to be open to them about the things that I struggle with. And they've loved me through those things and they've encouraged me and they've challenged me to turn from my temptation. And I want to encourage you to have people in your life who you trust and who you can be open with and who will listen to your struggles without judgment and they will challenge you to find ways to overcome your sin and encourage and love you to walk toward holiness. The greatest thing about holiness is the freedom to live without guilt and shame, to live where we're not hiding things from everyone or we're living a double life, but instead we have the freedom to be who we really are and that's a child of God who has been set free from the chains of sin. I think it's become clear today that God cannot stand sin. One of the things I love about him is that he actually does something about it. All other world religions and beliefs 
teach that we just need to be better. And it essentially addresses the outer behavior of bad people, quote unquote. But these other belief systems don't offer a viable solution. The Bible teaches that even though we were created to honor God and to be holy, that we rebel against who we were made to be. And instead, we pollute the planet with selfish ambitions and vain pursuits of happiness that leave a trail of devastation and collateral damage. The Bible teaches that we don't just have a sinful behavior problem. We have a sinful nature problem. It's basically who we are that is sinful. And that sinful nature brings death and destruction to each one of us, and it hurts the people around us. Because God is just, he has put an end to our destructive rampage. He has to, and the only way to do that is through death. God, though, in his grace and mercy, sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life. Jesus was crucified on the cross. The Bible teaches that Jesus took the penalty for our sin upon himself. The cool thing, though, is he didn't just take the penalty on the cross. The Bible says that he put to death that sinful nature. He rose again three days later, bringing new life to those who are willing to put their expectations in Jesus. And it's through trusting in Jesus that we have the ability to receive forgiveness of sins and a completely new life where we're no longer a slave to our sin, but instead we have a new life, being able to live in a way that glorifies God. And that's the kind of lives that we want to live as a church. We have the awesome privilege of celebrating communion today, which is something that we do once a month to help us to remember and celebrate the awesome freedom that we have through the power of the cross and the presence of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate that we have been forgiven and set free so that we can live with purpose and proclamation of the gospel to the broken world around us. At Freedoms, we invite everyone who has placed their faith in Jesus to join us, regardless of age or how long you've attended this church. After the bread and the juice is passed out, please hold on to it and we will eat it together. And now we will have the prayer for the bread. Dearest Heavenly Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your only son for our sake. As we take this bread, help us humbly recognize the incredible sacrifice your son gave to come into our everyday lives, live among us, be harassed and beaten, ridiculed and killed, all to save us, to redeem us, so we can have an eternal relationship with you. Even though we consistently sin against you, no matter how hard we try to do your will, we fall so short. Only Jesus taking our justified punishment and being resurrected saves us. Let us never forgive the, forget this or take it lightly. Let, us take, let this bread remind us of your love and grace at all times. Amen.
Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that I received from the Lord what I now pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We will now have the prayer for the cup. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to your table, we are so humbled by your unending love and grace for us. Such love that you gave your son as a sacrifice for all our sins. We are certainly not worthy of such love and grace. We know that you gave us this gift so we can be free from sin's chains to do your will on earth. As we partake in the cup today, refresh and renew us in your spirit. Let the Holy Spirit open your, our eyes to your will so we can see the world around us through your loving eyes and thus truly be a blessing to all your creation. Amen.
bread and drink this cup. You proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we have so many reasons to celebrate as your people. Lord, we know that we have sinned. Lord, our sin is constantly before us. Lord, we know and we can learn from the story from Achan that trying to hide our sin doesn't cut it. It doesn't work. Lord, when we sin, I pray that you would help us to recognize it, that we'd admit it, that we'd apologize from it. We'd receive your forgiveness and then we would turn away from it and choose instead to live lives free from sin. And that our, you would use us in great ways to help see the world around us see what redemption looks like through the way that we live. Amen.